You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Clips for this presentation are from C-SPAN, an oral history from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library collection, and several clips from the Richard Nixon Foundation. Only a few short weeks ago, we shared the glory of man's first sight of the world, as God sees it, as a single sphere reflecting light in the darkness. As the Apollo astronauts flew over the moon's gray surface on Christmas Eve, they spoke to us of the beauty of Earth, and in that voice so clear across the lunar distance, we heard them invoke God's blessings on its goodness. In that moment, their view from the moon moved poet Archibald MacLeish to write, to see the earth as it truly is, small and blue and beautiful, in that eternal silence where it floats, is to see ourselves as riders on the earth together, brothers in that bright loveliness and the eternal cold. Brothers who know now, they are truly brothers. In that moment of surpassing technological triumph, men turn their thoughts toward home and humanity, seeing in that far perspective that man's destiny on earth is not divisible, telling us that however far we reach into the cosmos, our destiny lies not in the stars, but on earth itself, in our own hands in our own hearts. We have endured a long night of the American spirit. But as our eyes catch the dimness of the first rays of dawn, let us not curse the remaining dark. Let us gather the light. Our destiny offers not the cup of despair, but the chalice of opportunity. So let us seize it, not in fear, but in gladness. And writers on the earth together, let us go forward, firm in our faith, steadfast in our purpose, cautious of the dangers, but sustained by our confidence in the will of God and the promise of man. Reagan once said, we believe that government action should be taken first by the government that resides as close to the people as possible. And his predecessor, Lyndon Johnson said, Washington should not be telling your hometown what to do to solve your problems of poverty. You ought to be telling us what we can do to help you carry out your plan. Two presidents who represent totally divergent political ideologies making statements that sound eerily the same. Different approaches to the same goal of solving issues and keeping the federal government from getting in the way. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, your host for this series. And we're not really that far apart 
We just need to figure out how to get it done. And I have some suggestions from a person who will surprise you, Richard Nixon. Now, Richard Nixon is as polarizing a figure in American history as you can think of. I realize people have strong feelings about him, but for whatever else you can say about him, he was an extremely effective president. He took well thought out positions on issues, foreign and domestic, and his plans usually worked. We can learn so much from Richard Nixon on policy, on ideas, and even from his mistakes and flaws that could help us bridge the political gap we have today. In his book, The Presidential Difference, Leadership Style from FDR to Clinton, Fred I. Greenstein calls Richard Nixon perhaps the best presidential executive to study and the worst. It's that best part we're going to look at today. President Nixon had a way of examining issues, studying the problem, and developing a plan to fix it. He took common sense approaches to the problems, and he didn't let ideology get in his way. He foresaw so many of our issues of today 50 years ahead of their time. I believe the second half of the 20th century will be known as the age of Nixon. Why was he the most durable public figure of our time? Not because he gave the most eloquent speeches, but because he provided the most effective leadership. Not because he won every battle, but because he always embodied the deepest feelings of the people he led. One of his biographers said that Richard Nixon was one of us, and so he was. He was a boy who heard the train whistle in the night and dreamed of all the distant places that lay at the end of the track. How American. He was the grocer's son who got ahead by working harder and longer than everyone else. How American. He was a student who met expenses by doing research at the law library for 35 cents an hour while sharing a rundown farmhouse without water or electricity. How American. He was the husband and father who said that the best memorial to his wife was her children. How American. To ten, tens of millions of his countrymen, Richard Nixon was an American hero. A hero who shared and honored their belief in working hard, worshiping God, loving their families, and saluting the flag. He called them the silent majority. Like them, they valued accomplishment more than ideology. They wanted their government to do the decent thing, but not to bankrupt them in the process. They wanted his protection in a dangerous world, but they also wanted creative statesmanship in achieving a genuine peace with honor. These were the people from whom he had come and who have come to Yorba Linda these past few days by the tens of thousands no longer silent in their grief. The American people love a fighter, and in Dick Nixon they found a gallant one. Nixon opened his memoirs with a simple sentence. I was born in a house my father built. Today we can look back at this little house and 
still imagine a young boy sitting by the window of the attic he shared with his three brothers, looking out to a world he could then himself only imagine. From those humble roots, as from so many humble beginnings in this country, grew the force of a driving dream. A dream that led to the remarkable journey that ends here today where it all began. Beside the same tiny home, mail ordered from back east, near this towering oak tree, which back then was a mere seedling. President Nixon's journey across the American landscape mirrored that of his entire nation in this remarkable century. His life was bound up with the striving of our whole people, with our crises and our triumphs. When he became president, he took on challenges here at home on matters from cancer research to environmental protection, putting the power of the federal government where Republicans and Democrats had neglected to put it in the past. First, I want to look at his many environmental accomplishments. They came from a simple philosophy of good government management that we should all, that we should all look at if we're going to ever be in charge of any, uh, any endeavor. He found great people and a great cause, and then he got the hell out of the way. For Nixon, this cause began early in his term when a giant oil leak occurred in Santa Barbara, California, in his home state. Nixon had to walk around and through oil blobs that were all over the beaches there. At the time, it was not known just how damaging that oil covering the birds would be, but thousands of these animals were affected by that oil. The zoo in Santa Barbara closed so that they could take care of the birds and various other animals that were affected. And much of what we now know about cleaning animals and getting them cared for after an oil spill, such as what we did after the giant uh, Valdez oil spill in Alaska, was learned during these pretty heady days and the effects of this Santa Barbara oil spill. Nixon and his team embraced the environmental cause, knowing that it was hitting a nerve with the American public. Each of us all across this great land has a stake in maintaining and improving environmental quality clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty, parks for all to enjoy. These are part of the birthright of every American. To guarantee that birthright, we must act, and act decisively. It is literally now or never. During the past three years, we have made a good start. We have passed new laws to protect the environment and we have mobilized the power of public concern. But there is much yet to be done. Eighteen of the major environmental proposals which I put forward a year ago have still not received final action by the Congress. I repeat today my urgent request for congressional action on this much-needed legislation. And I am also presenting a number of new proposals. The environmental agenda now before the Congress includes laws to deal with water pollution, pesticide hazards, ocean dumping, excessive noise, careless land development, and many other environmental problems. These problems will not stand still for politics or for partisanship. They demand to be met now. 
by meeting them now, we can make 1972 the best year ever for environmental progress. The time has come for man to make his peace with nature. Let us renew our commitment. Let us redouble our effort. The quality of our life on this good land is a cause to unite all Americans. The environment means all those things, but environment also means other things to people. It means, for example, for every family in America, a job so that he can enjoy the environment around him. And there are those sometimes who say that the two are in conflict, that it is impossible to have a great productive society like America, the most industrialized nation in the world, in a clean environment. We have gone through a period in the energy crisis when there have been evidences that these two great interests, one, production, which would provide jobs, and two, a clean environment, seem to come in conflict. But let me tell you what the answer is. We can have both, and we shall have both. And the way we can have both is to develop the great resources of this country in a way that they will not pollute the atmosphere, that they will contribute to a clean environment. And that is why we are going forward in terms of our huge government programs in research and development for the purpose of seeing that our coal resources can be developed into a clean fuel. That is why we are going forward in our programs for the development of solar energy and nuclear power, which of course would be clean fuel. And I can assure all of you here that your federal government, working with the states, working with private enterprise, can and will achieve the goal of not only a better and cleaner environment in terms of our water and our air, but also the jobs, the opportunity for all Americans that is so important for us to enjoy an environment. Nixon, however, did realize that any efforts we did had to do two things, solve a real problem and do so with common sense. That environmentalism done right meant a clean environment and more jobs and opportunity too. Nixon had a formula that worked. Let's identify the problem, figure out where we agree, develop a solution, a practical solution, and implement it. It's important that people who understand the obligation that we all have to do the things that will produce a better tomorrow, Richard Nixon once said, and that meant not being trapped by ideology, when we could make a common sense decision that helps our fellow man and protects our natural interests. The environmental achievements of the Nixon administration are a prime example of what can be achieved by following a common sense approach. Not going to extremes and striking a balance between economics and needed protections. When Nixon came into office, Santa Barbara was the place of an environmental calamity. In Ohio, the Cuyahoga River was so polluted it caught on fire. And Nixon wrote, We needed a profound commitment to rescue our natural environment and the preservation of Earth as a habitable and hospitable to man. Nixon never meant for it to be used as a weapon. 
but only that we strike a balance that both allows business to thrive and for nature to be enjoyed and thrive as well. You know, common sense goes a long way. On January 20th, 1969, Richard Nixon was inaugurated president. The environment hadn't been an issue in the 1968 campaign, but he mentioned it briefly in his inaugural address. In protecting our environment, enhancing the quality of life, and all these and more, we will and must press urgently forward. Suddenly, eight days later, on January 28, 1969, the environment became a very big issue. A blowout on an oil rig in the Santa Barbara Channel started a spill that precipitated an environmental catastrophe. Three million gallons of crude oil polluted the ocean and created a slick that devastated 35 miles of the California coast. Inspecting the damage, the new president said, I don't think we have paid enough attention to this. We are going to do a better job than we have done in the past. With the environment, he chose the smartest and most dedicated aides and advisors, told them to do the right thing, and promised them his support. Tell me what your priorities are. And I said, my number one priority, Mr. President, is to ban 1080, the terrible poison 1080, which was used to kill coyotes all over the West. And he said, you know, my wife has told me about this terrible poison. If you can write an environmental impact statement that will hold up in court, I'll do it. I won't make any friends in the Rocky Mountain West, but I'll do it. In his first State of the Union message, delivered on January 22nd, 1970, he identified the environment as the defining issue of the new decade. The great question of the 70s is, shall we surrender to our surroundings? Or shall we make our peace with nature? and begin to make reparations for the damage we have done to our air, to our land, and to our water. The President and First Lady marked the first Earth Day, April 20th, 1970, by planting a tree in the South Lawn of the White House. On July 9th, he proposed creating an Environmental Protection Agency to consolidate responsibility and accountability for the dozens of federal programs spread over several agencies and departments. Fifty years ago, on December 2nd, 1970, he signed the executive order that created the EPA. Determined to make a difference, President Nixon kept up a steady stream of bills and executive actions. The Democrats opposed many, and the Republicans weren't always enthusiastic. Eighteen of the major environmental proposals which I put forward a year ago have still not received final action by the Congress. I repeat today my urgent request for congressional action on this much-needed legislation. And I am also presenting a number of new proposals. These problems will not stand still for politics or for partisanship. They demand to be met now. Because of his determined leadership, and because the issue was of national concern, President Nixon was able to create a record. 
and leave a legacy of environmental breakthroughs and milestones that still shapes our world today. President Nixon was visionary on this. There's just no question about it. The first president to set aside public lands was Abraham Lincoln. We know what Teddy Roosevelt did with the national parks. And then you have Richard Nixon, who not only established EPA, but if you think about the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act, all the things that were part of that, that were NEPA, the things that that he implemented are extraordinary and far-reaching. He, We are the beneficiaries of his commitment. His transformational environmental legacy includes creating EPA, reducing emissions from cars and diesel engines, removing lead from gasoline and paint, protecting wetlands from development, eliminating use of destructive pesticides, cleaning up polluted sites, prohibiting ocean dumping, remediating cancer-causing asbestos, reducing acid rain, creating and promoting the Energy Star program. And his environmental legacy lives on today because of the Council on Environmental Quality, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Water Drinking Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, creation of NOAA and hurricane tracking, the Federal Environmental Pesticides Control Act. A poll of 12 leading environmental groups, including Friends of the Earth, the Sierra Club, Greenpeace, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Ralph Nader's Public Citizen, named Richard Nixon the second greenest president in U.S. history, second only to Theodore Roosevelt. Russell Train, the second EPA administrator and president of the World Wildlife Fund, wrote, Environmental protection represented without doubt in my mind the single most significant area of domestic policy accomplishment of the Nixon administration. In large part, the results of the Nixon initiatives remain in place today and form the foundation for the country's ongoing environmental programs. your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast uh, so far, and I want to invite you to come over to Amazon and take a look at our book, Always Vote Your Conscience. Don't take it personally, and don't fight the same old battles over and over again. Plus some other lessons and a few opinions from my time in politics. It's a book that I put out in December of last year, 2019. It has a lot of ideas based on our campaign for Congress in 2012 about how to bring the country together, some ideas and programs and policy initiatives that really could probably be embraced by anyone. I'd also like to invite you to come over to Facebook to our page, The Silent Majority. It's free to join, and this way you can keep up with different things that we will be doing in 2021 and beyond. And for now, I hope you've enjoyed looking back at the generation who grew up in the Great Depression and fought World War II and then led us through the American century. I'm Randall Wallace, and now let's get back to the show. (laughs) 
Members of the Senate, members of the House, ladies and gentlemen, we are here today for the purpose of signing the Cancer Act of 1971. And I hope that in the years ahead that we may look back on this day and this action as being the most significant action taken during this administration. It could be. Because when we consider what cancer does each year in the United States, we find that more people each year die of cancer in the United States than all the Americans who lost their lives in World War II. This shows us what is at stake. It tells us why I sent a message to the Congress the first of this year, which provided for a national commitment to, for the conquest of cancer to attempt to find a cure. And now with the cooperation of the Congress, with the cooperation of many of the people in this room, we have set up a procedure for the purpose of making a total national commitment. I'm not going to go into the details of that procedure, except to say this. As a result of what has been done, as a result of the action which will come into being as a result of signing this bill, the Congress is totally committed to provide the funds that are necessary, whatever is necessary, for the conquest of cancer. The President is totally committed. We have a presidential panel headed by Benno Schmidt, which will report directly to the President so that the President's influence, whenever necessary, can be used to reach this great goal. And in addition to that, all of the agencies of government, the National Institute of Health, HEW, etc., are totally committed. Now, having said that, I have spoken exclusively of government up to this point. In this room are scores of people who have worked voluntarily for this cause for many, many years. The American Cancer Society, of course, is the best-known organization, but there are many others as well. And in saying that there will be a presidential commitment, in saying that there will be a congressional commitment, a government commitment, I should emphasize that a total national commitment means more than government. It means all the voluntary activities must also continue. We have to realize that only one-sixth of everything that is produced in America is produced by what government does. Five-sixths of what we do in America is produced by what people do in their voluntary and cooperative capacities. And so we need the continued cooperation of all the volunteer organizations. You will have, of course, the total commitment of government. And that is what the signing of this bill now does. Finally, I should emphasize, as Benno Schmidt mentioned just a moment ago, that we would not want to raise false hopes by simply the signing of an act. But we can say this, that for those who have cancer and who are looking for success in this field, they at least can have the assurance that everything that can be done by government, everything that can be done by voluntary agencies in this great, powerful, rich country now will be done. And that will give some hope, and we hope those hopes will not be disappointed. Dr. Fred Applebaum, Deputy Director and Executive Vice President of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, said of this law in 2016, 
From my standpoint, the ultimate impact has been extraordinary. People had an idea that leukemia and other malignancies were caused by something wrong genetically, but we were, we were so ignorant back then of so much, Applebaum continued in an article for the Hutch News Service. President Nixon invested $1.6 billion into cancer research, $9 billion in today's dollars. He created 15 cancer research centers across the nation. In countless ways, the research magazine of the Fred Hutchinson Center wrote in 2016, the infrastructure required of an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center has kept Fred Hutch competitive in life-saving, leading-edge research and has done so for decades. Fred Hutch was one of the first 15 cancer research centers. Today, there are 69 centers. Incremental gains have kept coming from the research these centers have produced for over 40 years. The Fred Hutchinson Center has led the way in cancer immunotherapy and in bone marrow transplantation for treating blood cancers. And the same types of advancements can be said for other centers and for other cancers due to Nixon's war on cancer. At the end of the Fred Hutchinson Center article, Dr. Applebaum said of President Nixon's effort, it has already paid off in the cures of hundreds of thousands of patients, and it paved the way for the exciting developments in immuno immunotherapy and molecular-based treatments that are filling the headlines today. In 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. By 1970, seven southern states continued to drag their feet. President Nixon took office in 1969 and decided to take action. No man can be fully free while his neighbor is not. To go forward at all is to go forward together. This means black and white together as one nation, not two. On October 29, 1969, the United States Supreme Court ordered the immediate desegregation of public schools in the American South. Let me be very direct and very candid. Unitary school system must replace the dual school system throughout the United States. He declared Brown to be right in both constitutional and human terms. Nixon appointed Secretary of Labor George Shultz to help lead the effort. The law having been determined, it is the responsibility of those in the federal government and particularly the responsibility of the President of the United States to uphold the law. And I shall meet that responsibility. The President met his responsibility and leaders in each community stood up to theirs. The school openings were peaceful and the dual school system was finally dismantled. Before Nixon took office, 68% of black children in the South were attending all black schools. By 1974, it was 8%. Many people do not seem to realize the important role President Nixon played in desegregating the Southern school system. He did this years after the Brown versus the Board of Education decision had been handed down by the Supreme Court, which it did in 1954. President Nixon started his efforts in 1970, four administrations later. George Shultz, who, by the way, just turned 100 in the month of December of 2020, so happy 100th birthday to George Shultz, was the man in charge of the effort. And here in his oral history for the Richard Nixon Presidential Library, he tells the story. Anyway, the president decided that come the next um, school season, which would have been in 19, uh, 
uh, his decision was to insist that the schools be desegregated. This is all these years after the Brown decision. The schools in the South are still segregated. And in order to implement it, he work on the implementation, he appointed a, a committee. Vice President Agnew was made the chairman. I was the vice chairman. And Agnew said he wouldn't touch the issue with a 10-foot pole. Wouldn't have anything to do with it. So I became the chairman. The de facto, or, or did you actually replace him? Well, I was the de facto chairman. And I worked, Pat Moynihan was in the White House then, and a man named Len Garman, who was in the White House. The three of us, along with some other people, Don Rumsfeld was involved. He was head of the Office, Office of Economic Opportunity. And we developed a strategy in which we identified people in each of the states. There were seven states involved. Black, whites, equal numbers. And we said, let us, we're not going to have any attention to what their politics are. And we what we want are real people, that is, people who represent the point of view of their constituents, in a sense, and are not duty-bound to agree with each other, but they are people of significance. And so we recruited these groups. And... We had a little program and invite them up to Washington and we'd sit them down in the Roosevelt room and open up the discussion. And the first group was from Mississippi. And of course they started arguing about whether uh, desegregation, integration of the schools was a good thing. By and large the whites were saying it's not a good thing. And, Education's perfectly adequate, and the blacks were saying no. And it was a good-spirited argument, and I'd let it go until I felt it had, they had gotten it out of their system a little bit. And then I had John Mitchell, who was the attorney general on call, and I'd tap something, in, and I'd invite him in. He was thought of as the tough guy who was... Uh, the champion of the Southern whites. So I would say, well, Mr. Attorney General, when the school's open, what are you going to do? And he said, we're going to enforce law, which meant insist on desegregation. I said, thank you very much. Go. And then I said to the group, well, it's been an interesting discussion about the merits, but the discussion is kind of irrelevant. The point is, it's going to happen. You may like it, you may not like it. It's going to happen. So, the question is, how can you manage it? And you're the plant manager, and you live in X town, and you have a stake in the school system, and how good it is. You have a stake in stability in your community, and so on. So let's not argue about whether it's a good idea. Let's have a discussion of what you're going to do to manage it. And we had a little money to help, very flexibly applicable. And after a while, people got into it, and they, they, they began to work together and add that. And then I would send a signal in to the president, and he'd give us the word and invite us to the Oval Office. We 
was right across the hall from the Roosevelt Room. And President Nixon was magnificent. And he said to them, well, here we are in the Oval Office. Think of the decisions that have been made here. And we're involved in another great decision in our country. And I've made my decision. But in a country like ours, that's not enough. People make decisions in states and communities and neighborhoods if this is going to work. So now we're looking for you to make your decisions. And people went out of there on cloud nine. Very inspired. Did he do this for each of the seven? We, well, we did it for six, and it went very well each time. The one left over was Louisiana. And so I suggested, and Pat and Len Garment and I suggested, that instead of having the people come to Washington, we go to New Orleans. And we could have the Louisiana group in the morning, and then we could invite the co-chairman of each of the groups to come to New Orleans. And in the afternoon, we've had a meeting of the co-chairman, and this was not too long before the school year would open. It would be kind of a kickoff. So Vice President Agnew said, Mr. President, don't go. There, you'll be sitting in that room. Half the people will be white. Half the people will be black. There's going to be blood in the streets of the South. There's going to be blood on your hands if you go. Don't go. So the president looks at me. I don't. He wouldn't have held the meeting if he hadn't made up his mind. But anyway, he looks at me. Well, what do you say? I said, well, maybe the vice president is right. I don't know. But you've met with these people who have come up here. And they're good people, you can see that. And they're very well motivated, and we've been working with them. And whatever happens, you're the president. So I think we should do as good as we can, and going down there should help. So down we go. And I go down the night before with Pat and Lynn, and we start our meeting with the Louisiana group. And I'm very confident because we've done this six times. And all of a sudden it dawns on me. It's one thing to bring people to the White House. It's another thing to get them in a hotel room in their hometown, not the same setting. So we had a struggle. We almost got them there, but we didn't have them. And all of a sudden I get word, President has landed. President's 10 minutes out, President's five minutes out. So I adjourn, I go to the President, I say, Mr. President, and I'm thinking of Agnew. Um, always before it was all teed up, but you got to tee it up yourself this time because we're not quite there. And he came in and he did a wonderful job and turned him around and it worked. And then we uh, had our overall meeting. It went very well. And the actually the opening of the schools went very smoothly. And Len Garment went around to the main uh, television stations and media people and he said suppose a hundred schools open and there's some violence at one of them what is the story if you think the story is violence you're wrong the story is mostly overwhelmingly peaceful anyway we didn't have any violence and it worked and I give the president a lot of credit for standing up to that and 
and particularly down in New Orleans, I, I had a lump in my throat. That was risky. It was risky, yeah. But it was, it was dumb of me not to realize that it's one thing to bring people to the White House, and there they are in the Oval Office. In a hotel room in New Orleans, it's not the same. ...is really an unsung hero of civil rights. From 1969 on, Richard Nixon increased the budget of civil rights programs across the board from $75 million to over $600 million. When adjusted to modern dollars, it would equal a $3.4 billion investment. Nixon passed the Emergency School Aid Act to end segregation. He issued an executive order making federal agencies apply equal opportunity policies to all federal personnel policies. He had the federal government make purchases from black-owned uh, businesses, increasing buys from $13 million to $142 million, a 900% increase. He also created the Office of Minority Business Enterprise. Nixon also doubled the federal aid to historically black colleges. And Nixon was perhaps the greatest champion for Native Americans. He ended two centuries of horrible federal policies by giving Native Americans self-determination, which would be known as the Self-Determination Act. He returned the sacred Blue Lake to the people of the Taos Pueblo. He returned federal recognition to a tribe that had been terminated with the Minimini Restoration Act, and he signed the Indian Health Care Act. He increased the Bureau of Indian Affairs budget 214% and passed the Indian Financing Act, which allowed the tribes to pursue commercial development in their jurisdictions. Land, not money, was the victory today for the Tahoe Indians, who finally won a 64-year battle with the federal government. President Nixon invited a small group of chiefs to the bill signing ceremony, where the Tahoes officially regained title to their sacred Blue Lakes lands in New Mexico. The president called it a new direction for Indian affairs. My name is Bobby Green Kilbury. I was a staff assistant to the president. Everybody focuses on foreign policy, opening the door to China and Watergate, and they totally ignore domestic policy. And if you take a look at the domestic policy achievements of Richard Nixon, he was one of the most progressive Republican presidents before or since him. He was very close to his football coach at uh, Whittier College named Coach Newman. He was a member of the La Jolla Band of the Lucino Mission Indians in California. And the president felt that Coach Newman had been discriminated against because he was Native American. And that if he hadn't been discriminated against, he would have been in the top 10. But that just was not possible in those days. And so it was very personal. And in many, many ways, and Coach Newman was a mentor for him. But beyond that was his very strong belief that everybody should have equal opportunity, but that nobody should be forced into one mold that fit all. You had to have choice and you had to have opportunity. And the Native American people had not had that. Richard Nixon championed the rights of women, passing the Equal Employment Opportunity Act, and he appointed more women to high levels of the government than in all of his predecessors. 
saying, In the era of great challenges and potentials, the nation, in the private sector as well as in the government, at all levels, needs the capabilities and brain power of every single American. The full and equal participation of women is crucial to the strength of our country. Randall Wallace, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast uh, so far, and I want to invite you to come over to Amazon and take a look at our book, Always Vote Your Conscience. Don't take it personally, and don't fight the same old battles over and over again. Plus some other lessons and a few opinions from my time in politics. It's a book that I put out in December of last year, in 2019. It has a lot of ideas based on our campaign for Congress in 2012 about how to bring the country together, some ideas and programs and policy initiatives that really could probably be embraced by anyone. I'd also like to invite you to come over over to Facebook to our page, The Silent Majority. It's free to join, and this way you can keep up with different things that we will be doing in 2021 and beyond. And for now, I hope you've enjoyed looking back at the generation who grew up in the Great Depression and fought World War II and then led us through the American century. I'm Randall Wallace, and now let's get back to the show. policy. He came to the presidency at a time in our history when Americans were tempted to say we had had enough of the world. Instead, he knew we had to reach out to old friends and old enemies alike. He would not allow America to quit the world. There is no debate that it was in the foreign policy that Richard Nixon shined the brightest. It was here that Nixon knew exactly what he wanted to do and had a strategy to do it. He wanted us out of the quagmire of Vietnam. He wanted peace with honor. He wanted a strategically better and safer relationship on the world stage with the Soviet Union. And to do that, he wanted to open up relations with a country that had been isolated for 25 years, the People's Republic of China. An open world. Open to ideas, open to the exchange of goods and people. A world in which no people, great or small, will live in angry isolation. We cannot expect to make everyone our friend, but we can try to make no one our enemy. In what can only be described as an extraordinarily deft strategic planning, Nixon would achieve all three of his goals, triangulating the communist world. Fred I. Greenstein wrote in his book, In the view of a senior foreign policy officer who served every president, from Kennedy to Carter, Nixon had the most effective foreign policy team of any of the presidents for when he worked. Because Nixon insisted that genuine alternatives be placed before him, rather than one real choice of several artificially constructed options. Then he pursued the course that made the most strategic sense, like opening China, would push back the Soviets 
splitting the communist world and leveraging the two nations at each other, giving both motivation to try to help force their ally in Hanoi to end the war in Vietnam. The announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking and in the United States. Premier Cho Enlai and Dr. Henry Kissinger, President Nixon's assistant for national security affairs, held talks in Peking from July 9 to 11, 1971. Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Cho Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date before May 1972. President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure. The meeting between the leaders of China and the United States is to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries and also to exchange views on questions of concern to the two sides. I think we are about to see the president respond to the toast remarks by the premier. Yes. Now, the president followed the premier's remarks on his own private copy before. Did he not? Wasn't that what he was reading? I think so, yes. Yes, yes he was. Ross, is that Chu Chao Chi? Uh, I can't quite see yet. Uh, Bernie, I expect it would be. There are the two translators, as you say, Nancy Tung, with New York background, Chi Chao Chu with a Boston background. He went to is Harvard. that Chu Chao Chi? Yes, I think it is. Yes, yes. A, chemist, a chemist by training, Harvard educated. Mr. Yes. Yes. And who shared a room, as a matter of fact, all with a China specialist who's now at the State Department. Now, the President. On behalf speaking. of all of your American guests, I wish to thank you for the incomparable hospitality for which the Chinese people are justly famous throughout the world. And I particularly want to pay tribute not only to those who prepared the magnificent dinner, but also to those who have provided the splendid music. Never have I heard American music played better in a foreign land. I... Mr. Prime Minister, I wish to thank you for your very gracious and eloquent remarks. At this very moment, through the wonder of telecommunications, more people are seeing and hearing what we say than on any other such occasion in the whole history of the world. Yet what we say here will not be long remembered. What we do here can change the world. As you said in your toast, the Chinese people are a great people. The American people are a great people. If our two people are enemies, the future of this world we share together is dark indeed. But if we can find common ground to work together, the chance for world peace is immeasurably increased. 
In the spirit of frankness, which I hope will characterize our talks this week, let us recognize at the outset these points. We have at times in the past been enemies. We have great differences today. What brings us together is that we have common interests which transcend those differences. As we discuss our differences, neither of us will compromise our principles. But while we cannot close the gulf between us, we can try to bridge it so that we may be able to talk across it. And so let us, in these next five days, start a long march together, not in lockstep, but on different roads leading to the same goal, the goal of building a world structure of peace and justice in which all may stand together with equal dignity and in which each nation, large or small, has a right to determine its own form of government free of outside interference or domination. The world watches, the world listens, the world waits to see what we will do. What is the world? In a personal sense, I think of my eldest daughter, whose birthday is today. And as I think of her, I think of all the children in the world, in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, in the Americas, most of whom were born since the date of the foundation of the People's Republic of China. What legacy shall we leave our children? Are they destined to die for the hatreds which have plagued the old world? Or are they destined to live because we had the vision to build a new world? There is no reason for us to be enemies. Neither of us seeks the territory of the other. Neither of us seeks domination over the other. Neither of us seeks to stretch out our hands and rule the world. Chairman Mao has written, so many deeds cry out to be done and always urgently. The world rolls on. Time passes. 10,000 years are too long. Seize the day. Seize the hour. This is the hour. This is the day. For our two peoples to rise to the heights of greatness which can build a new and a better world. 
And in that spirit, I ask all of you present to join me in raising your glasses to Chairman Mao, to Prime Minister Cho, and to the friendship of the Chinese and American people, which can lead to friendship and peace for all people in the world. President has taken a glass of, uh, of Mao Tai and uh, Premier Zhou Enlai also. Zhou Enlai normally doesn't drink yes. it, he raises it to his mouth or when He's I'm a sly a There was sly one very fellow. interesting phrase, Bernie, the President referred to all standing together in equal dignity and I noticed Premier Zhou looking with great intensity as the President spoke those in other words. I think this is very important to the Chinese. There's uh, I think, drinking a toast. I think these words are important because, in a way, the Chinese are still struggling for equal dignity in the world. After a century of humiliation and weakness, and still weakness today, the question of gaining equal dignity is, in a way, the psychological heart of what China's trying to do in the world today. I think that's an important phrase that President Nixon Ross, has used there. Ross, I absolutely agree with you on that. I think that the word dignity, uh, national self-respect, independence, nationalism, that whole vocabulary that is very close to a nation's heart is a critical factor. There is a great story, a small story, in this trip to China that is worthy of us today of hearing about. In this era of demonization and polarization a lesson learned about why you're not rude to people all the time. Um, Richard Nixon would meet with Chow and Lei. He was the first premier of China. And if you watch the famous video that's always shown of President Nixon coming down the stairs, you will see he's about four steps from the bottom. He reaches his hand out so that it's very obvious that his hand is out and extended to shake hands with Chow and Lei. The story behind that was written in President Nixon's memoirs. He said, I knew Chow had been deeply insulted by Foster Douglas's refusal to shake hands with him at the Geneva Conference in 1954. When I reached the bottom step, therefore, I made a point of extending my hand as I walked toward him. 
when our hands met, one era ended and another began. He reached his hand out first to make sure Chow knew that this was a token of friendship. Folks, tit for tat. You get in here, you get the rolling. This has been going on for 40 years in our country of, of insults and of demonization and accusing people of all kinds of criminal activity. And once you do that, you can never go back. You can never work with someone again. And you end up more and more isolated and more and more unwilling and unable to bridge that gap. And that's what Nixon's great gesture in China to start that event off was all about. Extending his hand and reaching across a gap of 25 years in totally different cultures, totally different everything, political philosophies, to make a relationship that has grown, though a little testy today, into a very productive one over the past 50 years. A lesson that uh, we can learn from Richard Nixon about today's political climate between Republicans and Democrats and these extremes that are gripping our country and creating all of this trouble we've seen. Anyway, after China was opened, the dominoes began to fall into place. Nixon was able to get us out of Vietnam and get signed arms control agreements between us and the Soviet Union, the first of their kind. On an evening like this, as it reaches the hour of midnight, uh, we look back on the day and we also look forward to how we will evaluate this day. And with the entertainment that we've had, the refreshments, the good food, that alone would make it a memorable evening. But I think the General Secretary will agree with me when I say that it is our goal and it is our hope that this day begins a week of meetings which will make a greater contribution to the cause of peace in the world than any meetings ever held in this house. That is a great goal we believe we could achieve. Слово. Я разделяю полностью мысли президента. Мы должны сделать все для блага человека во имя человека. Just two words to say that I fully share what the president has just said. We must indeed do all we can for the good of man and for the benefit of man. Now, as the host, I always get the last word. <laughs> I want to say to the General Secretary that all of the rest of you are invited to dance till one o'clock or later. But it's seven o'clock in Moscow and time for you to get up, not to go to bed. <laughs> the day begins. <laughs> General Secretary, Excellencies, distinguished guests, 
The two agreements to be signed today have been examined by the acting legal advisor of the Department of State and by the acting chief of the treaty section of the Treaty and Legal Division of the Soviet Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The documents have been found to be in proper order. The first of the two agreements to be signed is the agreement between the United States of America and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics on the scientific and technical cooperation in the field of peaceful uses of atomic energy. We shall now proceed with the signature of that agreement. We shall now proceed with the signature of the second agreement, Basic Principles of Negotiations on the Further Limitation of Strategic Offensive Arms. Good evening. I have asked for this radio and television time tonight for the purpose of announcing that we today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. The following statement is being issued at this moment in Washington and Hanoi. At 12.30 Paris time today, January 23, 1973, the agreement on ending the war and restoring peace in Vietnam was initialed by Dr. Henry Kissinger on behalf of the United States and Special Advisor Lee Duc Tho on behalf of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. The agreement will be formally signed by the parties participating in the Paris Conference on Vietnam on January 27, 1973 at the International Conference Center in Paris. The ceasefire will take effect at 2400 Greenwich Mean Time, January 27, 1973. The United States and the Democratic Republic of Vietnam express the hope that this agreement will ensure stable peace in Vietnam and contribute to the preservation of lasting peace in Indochina and Southeast Asia. That concludes the formal statement. Throughout the years of negotiations, we have insisted on peace with honor. In my addresses to the nation, from this room of January 25th and May 8th, I set forth the goals that we considered essential for peace with honor. In the settlement that has now been agreed to, all the conditions that I laid down then have been met. A ceasefire, internationally supervised, will begin at 7 p.m. this Saturday, January 27, Washington time. Within 60 days from this Saturday, all Americans held prisoners of war throughout Indochina will be released. There will be the fullest possible accounting for all of those who are missing in action. During the same 60-day period, all American forces will be withdrawn from South Vietnam. The people of South Vietnam have been guaranteed the right to determine their own future without outside interference. By joint agreement, the full text of the agreement and the protocols to carry it out will be issued tomorrow. I'll be back with a final thought in just a moment. To know the secret of Richard Nixon's relationship with the American people, you need only to listen to his own words. You must never be satisfied with success, he told us. And you should never be discouraged by failure. Failure can be sad, but the greatest sadness is not to try and fail, but to fail to try. In the end, what matters is that you have always lived life to the hilt. Strong, brave, unafraid of controversy, unyielding in his convictions, living every day of his life to the hilt, 
the largest figure of our time whose influence will be timeless. That was Richard Nixon. How American. May God bless Richard Nixon. And may God bless the United States. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. In war, they saw horrible things. I never saw such a sight in my life, and I couldn't imagine anybody could be so cruel to people as to treat them like that. As young men, they defeated Nazi tyranny. When I think back, I can't believe I did those things. In the two-part conclusion, we hear some of their amazing stories of World War II, as we also look back on the 1990s as they began to leave the stage and turn over the reins of power to a new generation of leadership. Let me say a special word. Let me say a special word to all the young Americans and the young people who were involved in my campaign. And I would say to the young people and all the others involved, it's a lot more fun winning. It hurts to lose an election. But stay involved and keep fighting the good fight because, because you are the ones who will make the 21st century the next American century. Next time on Bridging the Political Gap. day for his family, his friends, and his nation to remember President Nixon's life in totality. To them, let us say, may the day of judging President Nixon on anything less than his entire life and career come to a close. May we heed his call to maintain the will and the wisdom to build on America's greatest gift, its freedom to lead a world full of difficulty to the just and lasting peace he dreamed of. President Richard Nixon had an extraordinary career. His impact on our nation was profound, as was his impact on the world. There are a lot of really good things we can learn from him on, like I say, policy, plans for reorganizing the government, uh, universal basic income for, to replace our welfare system, family assistance program, health care reform, revenue sharing, and on and on and on that I just didn't have time to get into in this program. As I like to say, you can learn a lot from Richard Nixon. Bob Dole recently wrote about some lessons our leaders of today can learn from President Nixon. Today's leaders can also learn to think in terms of national interest versus becoming a prisoner of ideology. Of course, 
Nixon was a partisan, and few possessed such a seasoned political antenna as he did. But above all, he was a pragmatist, not an ideologue. Dole pointed out in his op-ed that Nixon came to office as the first president since Zachary Taylor to have both houses of Congress in the hands of his opposition. Yet, he worked with Democrats to transform this country, accomplishing legislative victories with dramatic legacies. Here was Richard Nixon, the most controversial figure of the last half of the 20th century, and yet he was able to accomplish an enormous amount, with both houses of Congress not only in the opposing party's hands, but in a hostile opposing party to him personally. If he can get government to work this well, don't you think that we should be able to do it now, too? We have talked quite a bit about the poisonous atmosphere of today's political climate, and I hear objections often to the type of politics that I recommend here, reaching out and, and finding that common ground so common to the old school of politics. But I leave you with one more thing we can learn from Richard Nixon. Let me say, I admire, respect, and believe that one day history is going to record Richard Nixon as one of our top five or six presidents. But we can learn from his mistakes and his flaws as a leader, too. Here is a final lesson for all of you, given what is, I think, arguably one of the most inspiring speeches ever and ironically, his lowest moment. Always give your best. Never get discouraged. Never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you. But those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. And so we leave with high hopes, in good spirit, and with deep humility, and with very much gratefulness in our hearts.
thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.